Good morning, First Alliance Church. My name is Pastor DeAndre, and I have the privilege of being your youth pastor. We, we practice that. We practice that. I believe that the Lord has something special for us this morning, so let's get started. Look at your neighbor and say, put the crown down for now and pick up your cross. Look at your neighbor and say, put the crown down for now and pick up your cross. My goal for us this morning is to realize that if we have decided to follow Jesus, we have agreed to pick up our crosses and die to ourselves on a daily basis in order for Christ to be glorified and the Father's will to be done. If you are able, please turn with me to the gospel of Matthew. Now today we're going to focus primarily on Matthew chapter 20 verses 20 through 28. But to give us a little context to our reading this morning, we're going to have to jump back to chapter 19 to read a little there. So mark off those two chapters in your Bible, Matthew chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 20. Both of our readings are happening sort of in the middle of Jesus teaching to his disciples and the crowd of people who tend to follow him and listen to him. He spent some time speaking in parables, but then he leaves with his disciples and they head up to Jerusalem. Leading up to our reading in chapter 19, Jesus is teaching on how to attain perfection. In this particular teaching, he commands a young man to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor, and you will find treasure in heaven. However, this young man didn't like that, so he decided to peace out. Now, after Jesus' teaching, one of the disciples, Peter, it's always, it's always Peter, looks up to Jesus and asks him a very consumer-like question. What I mean by consumer is Peter asked this question because his focus was on receiving something. Or in other words, because I did this, what will I get out of it? For example, when you go to a store to purchase something, you're there to give them something in order to receive something. So therefore, you are a consumer. Now let's read this question to Jesus. Matthew chapter 19 verses 27 through 30. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now, after this, Jesus begins to teach in parable format once again. This is where we're going to turn to chapter 20. Right? So we're going to turn to chapter 20. Now in chapter 20, he talks about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. He ends this parable saying something very familiar that he had did in his response to Peter. In chapter 20, verse 16, he says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. In verse 17, it tells us that Jesus then begins to foretell his death for a third time. Now, Matthew, he illustrates us that Jesus talks about him being mocked, flogged, and then crucified. 
He also speaks about his resurrection on the third day. But Matthew does not note anything about the response of Jesus' disciples. Shortly after this, Jesus is approached by a woman and her two sons. And this is where our second primary reading for today will begin. And that is Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. God, make me a vessel. May the words that I have prepared in this study uh, be anointed by your Holy Spirit to rest easy on the hearts of your people. Prepare our hearts, our ears, our eyes to see, hear, and feel what you have for us this morning, Lord. Pray this in your holy, holy name. Amen. Now we have this request brought to us, uh, brought to Jesus by this woman who's introduced by Matthew as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now for your personal notes, this woman's name was actually Salome. My study of these verses brought me to believe that this is the same woman who was standing by the cross of Jesus with his mother. Now if this is true, then this isn't just any woman. Right, that, that that is approaching Jesus. This is actually his aunt, which means that her two sons that she is there with are Jesus's cousins. This man named Zebedee had two sons who reported to be disciples, and those disciples' names were James and John. So Jesus's aunt and his two cousins, James and John, approached Jesus and his disciples, and they bowed down in front of him. Verse twenty-one tells us that Jesus looks down at Salome and asks this woman, what do you want? To which she replies with a royal request. She says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now reading this, I'm thinking that this is a pretty bold request. She's asking Jesus that her sons, his two cousins would be able to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. Two things jumped out at me when I was reading this. Thing number one, I do believe that there was a relational kinship that she might have wanted to take advantage of here. She says, Jesus, these two sons of mine who are also your cousins, will you allow them to sit on your left and your right? Now in a kingdom, those are pretty important seats. Whoever sits at the right and the left of a king is, is, is pretty important. 
And I believe she wanted her sons to sit there because what mother doesn't want the best for her sons? So what's better than the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom? Thing number two. I also believe that this woman and her two sons really did believe that Jesus was Lord and Savior. Here's why. Salome's request had to come from a place of belief. See, when she bowed in front of Jesus, it was her act of saying that I will prostrate myself in front of you, first acknowledging that you are Lord. But then in her request, she asked for her sons to be in Jesus's kingdom, not just in his kingdom, but to sit at his left and his right hand on thrones. To ask something like that, she had to believe that Jesus had the power to save them and take them to this kingdom. Now, do you remember a couple of verses uh, when we read in Matthew chapter 19? Well, she, she was there. Salome and her two sons, they were there. Now, let's go back to chapter 19, starting in verse 27. Right after Jesus teaches about how hard it is for a rich person to enter heaven, stubborn Peter it's always Peter. See, this is why I believe that the disciples, they were a bunch of teenagers, right? <laughs> because Peter was the oldest and he was, he was about 18 years old. And how many of us are running into complications with 18 year olds almost on a daily basis, right? It's okay. You can raise your hand. This is why I believe that the disciples were teenagers, right? But, but this time, Peter, he actually asked a pretty good question which everyone hears right before Jesus' response to him. In verse 27, Peter asks, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Remember when I said before that Peter's request was very consumer-like? He says, we have followed you, but what will we get in return for following you? Just like you taught that young man, we left everything for you, so what about us? What are we going to get for following you, Jesus? Now, don't we think like that sometimes? Don't we say to ourselves, man, this is hard, but I know if I can get through it, I will receive some kind of reward. I mean, it's the motivation that most of us use for going to the gym, right? I know it's hard to get there. It stinks to work out. But man, I know if I can just stick it through, I'll get some sort of results. Now, how many people in the world may have made the decision to not believe in God because he simply couldn't do something for them? Or in the moment when we needed him, he wasn't there to give us what we needed. Or how about this? When I first started, didn't I say something like, I believe that the Lord has something good for us this morning? And then some of you were like, mm-hmm. If every place you enter or every conversation you have starts with you wondering, what am I going to get out of this? That is a consumer mindset. And that is the mindset of Peter during this conversation and of Salome when she approaches Jesus with her two sons. Now, Jesus's response to both of them is, is really similar. 
Let's read chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus says that in this new world, that phrase, new world, is the term regeneration. So Jesus is saying that when the world has been made new, reborn or recreated, when that happens, the son of man will sit on his glorious throne and his disciples who have followed after Jesus would also sit on those 12 thrones. Now, Salome is listening to this and maybe she thought he said 12, one, two, Three, four. My, my two boys are included in that 12. But I don't want them just to have a throne. I want them to sit at Jesus's right hand and his left hand. So they will follow after him because we know that the cost of discipleship isn't easy. But here is the reward. Here is what he said you will get out of it. Look at your neighbor and say, put the crown down for now. And pick up your cross. It's okay. You can say it. Salome listened to everything Jesus said. But I fear she forgot the last thing that he said. Chapter 19 verse 30. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. This was brought to my attention when I read Jesus' response to this woman's request. She lies prostrate before him and asks that her son sit at Jesus' left and right hand. And he replies in chapter 20, verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Jesus' response is to both the mother and to her sons because the request came from the hearts of James and John but was simply presented through the mouth of their mother. Jesus' response says that their request comes from ignorance. You do not know what it is that you are actually asking. Then he looks at the boys and he says, are you able to drink from this cup that I am going to drink from? And they respond... We are able, we can, we can do this. Now, before we draw conclusions as to say that James and John have no idea what Jesus is talking about, they, they sort of kind of do, which is why I want to talk a little bit more about this cup that Jesus mentions before we go on. In Jesus's response, the cup, it's symbolic. There is no actual cup in either of their hands. When Jesus asked if the brothers were able to drink from the cup, he was actually asking them, are you willing and able to do what is going to be asked of you? Jesus's metaphor of a cup is commonly known to these men and the people that surround them. And I don't believe that Jesus was trying to confuse them. He wasn't speaking in parable format because he tended to do that when he wanted only a few people to understand his teaching. But here... Here, I believe he wanted to make sure that James and John knew what he was talking about. This cup was, was common in that time because drinking from a cup or a cauldron of some sort meant that you were accepting the responsibility that has been presented before you. For example, some characters in a story would be presented with a quest. 
If that quest was accepted, at times they would drink from the same cup or cauldron and saying, we are willing to do all that we can to make this quest a success. We've seen that in some of the movies, right? Remember Jesus in a garden of Gethsemane asking, Father, if it is your will, may you take this cup from me. That's, that's the cup. Now, it's important for us to know when Jesus asked James and John if they were able to drink from this cup that he is drinking from, he knew that James and John were unable to save the world from their sins because only Jesus could do that. So when he looks at these two men and asks them, are you able to drink from this cup? He is actually saying, are you willing to take what your future will bring? In this particular instance, I believe that Jesus was talking about suffering. Jesus is asking, are you willing to suffer in ways similar to how I will suffer? Now, I truly believe that this is what he is asking them, because when he asked that question to James and John, they responded, we are able, we can, we've got this. Then Jesus looks at them and says something pretty shocking. He says in verse 23, you will. You will drink from my cup. Jesus is saying, listen, this cup that I'm talking about, you you will drink from it. This is actually, this is actually a prophecy. Because if you read through the book of Acts and then Revelation, you will read that James becomes one of the first martyrs of the early church, which means that he was murdered because of his his, his belief and in, in his faith in God. And his death was more than likely a very brutal death. Then his brother John suffered persecution and exile. Didn't these things happen to Jesus? Wasn't he beaten and outcast among the people? Wasn't he persecuted? Jesus' words to James and John were a warning that becoming my disciple means that there will be suffering. There will be pain and there will be persecution. And this is a warning that the gospels record all over. For example, John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They persecuted the king of kings, the lion of Judah, and they will persecute you also. And I believe this warning goes out to us as disciples today. Persecution will come. Some of you are already experiencing it. Persecution because of your faith and what you believe. But it's promised to us. Jesus says it will come. But just like we sang earlier. You are making new wine. That process takes crushing. It takes, it takes pressing. It takes uncomfortability. And in those moments when persecution comes, know that the Lord is with you. But it's just his process of making new wine out of you. Persecution will come. And I believe that in this church that we are supposed to be doing what the Christian and Missionary Alliance is striving to do. The Christian and Missionary Alliance is our denomination. And, and our denomination strives to be a Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8 church. Because we believe that Jesus has commanded us to go and make disciples, not consumers. So Jesus tells these cousins of his, there will be suffering And if that's not bad enough, he continues. Then he says, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. He says that those thrones that I spoke about, 
Those thrones, they're, they're coming, but it isn't even mine to give you. The thrones that I spoke about, they belong to my father and he is the one that is preparing them. I am not the one that is going to give them to you. But while we're here on this earth, the thing that I am asking you to do is to pick up your cross and follow after me daily. Friends, Jesus had it all. He had thrones. He was king of kings. He was in heaven and he gave it all up to pick up a cross. So one more time. Look at your neighbor and say, put the crown down and pick up your cross. Now, what I mean by this is Jesus has made a way for us to have eternal life with the father in heaven. Amen. The time will come when there is no more pain. There is no more suffering and we will be in heaven and everything will be perfect. You and I have been adopted into a royal family as sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. And we will receive an inheritance of royalty. But Jesus didn't ask us to pick up those crowns yet. Instead, when he ascended into heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit and teach them everything that I have commanded you. He said, go and make disciples, people who are going to follow after me. And then he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus commanded that if we are going to follow him, we have to pick up our cross on a daily basis and follow after him. If he is telling you to pick up your cross, he isn't talking about a a flashy necklace. And he's not even talking about this polished piece of wood that hangs here on our wall. When he says, pick up your cross, what do you think he's talking about? When he says, follow after me, where do you think he's going? When Jesus says that you have to pick up your cross, you need to picture the fact that after he was beaten and exhausted, he carried that piece of wood that he would hang on for as long as he could until someone else needed to carry it for him. That wood made it to Calvary where Jesus hung and he died for the sins of the world. He suffered and he died so that we could have life. He hung on that cross so that the will of the father could be done. Where do you think your cross is going to lead you? John 640, it tells me that the father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. Now, the only way that that's been made possible is because Jesus, he wanted to serve us so much that he was willing to die to himself. Jesus's cross Gave you a means to a relationship with the father. Now your cross should also lead you to dying to yourself so that others may be brought to the father as well. And this is why we are here. We are here sitting in these pews on Sunday morning when our lead pastor, Pastor Mike stands here and he teaches us how to be a church that does not have a consumer mindset. Instead, We are an army. This is the reason that we are going through the book of Acts together. 
He is leading us through scripture on how to be a congregation that goes out and glorifies God, loves our neighbors, and creates disciples. Our pastoral staff is reading a pretty, pretty awesome book together. And I'd like to just read a few sentences out of this book. And the book is called Gaining um, by Losing. Uh, I, I really think this book is awesome. I'm so glad that I'm reading it. Uh, it says here, the church is not an audience to be entertained. It is an army to be empowered. The large crowd will not change the world. The mobilized force of spirit-filled believers will. Now don't, don't get me wrong. I love, I love being one of your pastors. I love, I love discipling your students and teaching them about Jesus. And we have fun when we do it. This, this part, this part, where you, this part, you go, woo. We practice this. No, apparently I'm not doing a really good job. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> With the fun comes teaching them, equipping them to be disciples, equipping them to be an army, being a disciple that is ready to pick up their cross and follow after Jesus. This is the cup. And if you were a disciple of Jesus, this is your cup. Drinking from this means that there will be a time, yes, when you will be raised up. But right now, Jesus has asked that we die to ourselves so that the Father may be glorified. So one question I have for you is who have you died for lately? When is there a time when you decided to die to yourself so that God may be glorified? In the moment that someone needs something, are you willing and able to die to yourself to be able to love your neighbor. Now I'll be honest and I'll tell you when it's really hard for me to die to myself. It's really hard for me to die to myself when I come home from a long day of work. And all I want to do is sit at home on the lazy boy and watch Criminal Minds or Law and Order SVU. Right? Like that's, that's what I want to do. <laughs> but when I get home, my one year old has been screaming. And my wife, who is in her third trimester, needs a break from running around after that said one-year-old. And then the dogs are jumping and barking because they need just as much attention as the baby does. And all daddy wants to do is just lay down and be a lazy boy. That's why it's called a lazy boy. Or when I'm in the grocery store for too long, which to be honest with you is like five minutes after I walk in the door. We need to be in and out. But then it's time for us to check out and there's 30 people in line say it with me in one register open. <laughs> and then you meet that person. You make eye contact as they get into the line right before you. And you're like, no, no, I, I, I got here first. Right. Or how do you die to yourself when it's time to tithe, but yet you're still worried about your bills getting paid. How do you die to yourself when you know that there's an area in church that needs people to serve, but you feel as though I just don't, I don't like that particular age range. How do you die to yourself when you come to church and going to church is no longer about being a consumer when you stop coming just because you're getting something out of it in the end. But instead when your lead pastor stands here and says that it's time that you have a soldier mentality. 
a mentality that there is a mission that needs to be done. Will you look away and say, well, my crown is already secure already, right? I have my ticket into heaven and that's that all, that's all that matters. Someone else can go out and be persecuted for their faith. Or will you say, I'll set that crown down for now and pick up my cross. Some of us, we have a very indignant response to that. Don't ooh over my word indignant. Matthew taught it to me. He says here in our last couple of verses. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now that word indignant, I just like saying it indignant means that you respond by showing a feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. Some of you are looking at me like, can you use that in an example, please? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I can. My wife, Katie, does an amazing job providing our daughter Isabel with toys that are extremely safe for her. And then she stores the ones that are a little mature for her until later. Reason being is because she's at the age of life when the purpose of everything that she touches is to go into her mouth. So we give her things that are safe for her to do that. Even though we do this, she finds her way no matter how far to the things that are extremely toxic for her. So being the extremely mature parent that I am, I let her keep it and teach her a lesson. Just kidding. I take it from her. And then when I take it from her, she turns all red in the face and she starts to scream as loud as she can. We call this the flaming Jack, Jack baby mode. If any of you babysit my daughter, you've, you've experienced that. She just, ah, and she just gets all red in the face. Because this is her way of explaining to me, this is extremely unfair that you took this thing from me. It's unfair. And then I look at her and I say, don't be so indignant, baby. (laughs) Such an indignant baby. Sometimes we feel like it's unfair that we are treated a certain way because we are Christians. Sometimes we feel like we need to be treated better because we're Christians. Meanwhile, Jesus said that if they persecuted me, they're going to, they're going to persecute you, but we feel like that's unfair, right? Or we're annoyed because we're asked to live apart from a world that we desperately want to be a part of. And we think it's unfair that we have to live apart from this world. So some of us may be thinking right now, I don't want to go out and love on the community. I don't want to go out and I don't want to serve. I'm not ready for that. And it's super unfair that I have to do that. My access to heaven isn't because of works, so I shouldn't have to work. My response is the same as Jesus's. He rebukes his disciples for responding that way. Here in verse 25, He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, you you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
These last verses here, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that you know that the people who rule over the Gentiles do it in such a way that it's because of their status that gives them power over the people who are below them. An example, the Gentiles. We may say, well, because I'm a believer, because I'm a Christian, I'm better than those who are not. Simply because of this status of Christian. But Jesus says that as a disciple, it shall not be that way with you. But if there is someone who is to be considered great among you, they must be your servant. I read in a book once that in the church, there's a lot of celebrities, but very few servants. There are many who want to exercise their authority, but very few who want to take the towel and the basin and wash feet. Which is why verse 28 is so powerful. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which he did. This is why when Jesus would do something so humbling, like wash the feet of his disciples, they would all freak out. You're not supposed to do that. You're the king of kings. This is below you. Don't do that. But that's exactly what he came here to do. He came here to serve. He said it many times. Even in his last days, Jesus hung on the cross serving you and serving me. Then he looked to his left and he looked to his right, surrounded by criminals and still serving one by offering him eternal life on the cross. To do the will of the father is to glorify God. One of the ways God is glorified is when his people are willing to die to themselves daily in order to go out and love their neighbors and create disciples. When you become a follower of Jesus, there's more after the promise of salvation. This is what reads on our website of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. It says many Christians understand God's promise of salvation but do not experience the ongoing sanctifying work of Jesus Christ in their lives. For those who neither understand nor allow the Holy Spirit's control in their lives, the results have a profound effect. So what this means is, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your hearts that God rose him from the dead after he died on that cross, then yes, you are saved. It's what scripture tells us. You are saved. Which means that you will inherit heaven. Eternal life. So you essentially will be given a crown. But there's a sanctifying work that needs to be done. This process of becoming more like Jesus is what we're doing while we're here. And if you say that you are a disciple... You drink from the cup that states that I'm going to become more like Jesus because becoming more like Jesus is what's going to help me glorify the father. And that is the will is to to glorify the father. So you have to become more like Jesus. In scripture, many times Jesus said, I've come here to serve. He had everything. He had crowns. He laid him down for a cross. So yes, if you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, then yes, you are saved. But today, would you today look at your neighbor for one last time and say, put the crown down for now and pick up your cross. Let's pray. God, this one, this one kind of hurts. I mean, it, it, it hurt me preparing it. Sorry. Look in all the ways to where I am unwilling to die to myself. To glorify you or to, to love my neighbor or to make disciples, Lord. But Father, I pray that the words that I've prepared have been anointed by your Holy Spirit and are able to pierce the heart of your people. And that the Holy Spirit is able to do the work of regeneration creating us into new beings, more like Jesus, the sanctifying process, Lord. So Father, may your words carry with us that you have come not to be served, but to serve, to give your life as a ransom for many. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.